The Graduate Center of the City University of New York presents Academically Speaking, an audio mini-series about the dissertation process, from planning and writing all the way to the defense, as told by Graduate Center students and faculty. This episode, we're joined by Mickey Kaufman from History and Steve Breyer from Urban Education. I'm Mickey Kaufman. I'm a sixth-year doctoral student in U.S. History at the CUNY Graduate Center. Um, I started this research as an incoming uh, first year. Um, I recently received my MPhil after my M, my Master of Arts. Um, so, and I am what's called ABD, which means solely the dissertation and its defense stands between me and completing my degree. I'm Steve Breyer. I'm a professor in the Urban Education PhD program and the founder and coordinator of the Interactive Technology and Pedagogy Doctoral Certificate program here at the Graduate Center. I'm also with Matt Gold, the co-founder of the uh, Digital Humanities Track in the MALS program, and I teach in all three of those programs. And um, my own work is as a U.S. labor and social historian interested in the history of public education education and labor, those kinds of questions. Um, I met Mickey soon after she came to the Graduate Center and was very taken with her approach and her interest in extending and pushing forward the digital humanities realm. And I've I've been actively involved with her dissertation work as a member, the outside member, the not, I'm not in the history, on the history faculty, I'm in the urban ed faculty, so I'm the outside uh, person on her committee, and I've had the pleasure of reading and following her work for now four or five years. The title of my dissertation is Everything on Paper Will Be Used Against Me, Quantifying Kissinger. Um, And essentially it is a um, computational analysis of the Kissinger Collection, which is a curated set of materials uh, held at the National Archive, um, specifically the National Security Archive, curated by uh, Nate Jones and a number of uh, archivists, presidential scholars, uh, um, curators at the archive. Essentially what it came out of was a core proposition, which was, um, as a young scholar beginning to study Kissinger, I realized that the most daunting problem facing scholars of of that time and that era, specifically that man, but also that, that administration in that era, was that perhaps for the first time in history, the biggest challenge facing the historian was an overabundance of data rather than a, a paucity of information. Traditionally, historians are taught how to assemble arguments based on a limited amount of available evidence, uh, how to determine what evidence is truly representative, how to avoid making false arguments through cherry-picking, um, and other sort of... Uh, pitfalls of a traditional historical method. In this case, there's so much material that, like a number of historians who've attempted to study such rich topics, I would have had to take 20 or 30 years to familiarize myself with the breadth of material and really read through in what's called close reading to get an understanding of all this material. And so I thought, being that the proposition of a dissertation underlying anything else is an expansion of 
the, the, the realm of knowledge, making a contribution uh, of some sort to the practice of history, that perhaps one problem I might be able to help contribute to solving, or at least not solving, but, but begin to address, uh, was how to enable historians in these situations where there's an overabundance of material. I also, sort of looking ahead, thought to myself that this is likely to be an increasing problem for historians as time moves on, and historians, for example, who study the current day will need to be able to master these topics in order to make any sense of the kind of rapid-fire media world uh, in which our politics takes place these days, for example. So that's what I said about doing. You know, Mickey and I talked early on. Uh, she came to my office. We had a conversation. I was very enthusiastic about her project on Kissinger because I thought this was a this was a moment four or five years ago when big data was you know big, and if I can put it that way, but not so well developed that we had a, a clear sense of what that would look like at the Graduate Center in terms of a doctoral dissertation. There were some faculty and are some faculty doing big data, particularly in sociology, people like Paul Adewell, but. Um, Mickey brought this kind of unique perspective, and, and as a historian myself, I was totally struck by the way she engaged with historical questions and how she wanted to use big data to rethink our understanding of Henry Kissinger, who he was as first national security advisor and then as secretary of state, and that really excited me. So uh, we talked. She, you know, began her work, and what I've had the pleasure of seeing is the extraordinary development of her work over these four years. Where she was at the beginning and where she is now is, you know, night and day. I mean, it's just there, there's so much more insight, sophistication, a, a kind of abstraction, understanding about how to not only use big data, but how to present it. And I think that's really the thing that has most always impressed me about Mickey's work, is the way she kind of is always at the cutting edge of thinking new of, of new ways to present big data so that it's comprehensible to, to non-specialists. And I think that's what has excited me um, about her work. And then, you know, it's important to say that Mickey's been supported throughout this process with a series of digital innovation grants that the provost of the Graduate Center made available, and I and Matt and several other the faculty here and staff are actively engaged in reviewing student proposals. And Mickey, how many times did you get it? Three or four? It's five. Five. So, I mean, this that that's unprecedented in terms of how we've done this award over the last half dozen years and I think it's a measure of how much confidence we have in Mickey's work and um, and want to support it and encourage her to, to bring it to fruition. Another thing that Steve mentioned I think that's crucial is the question of presentation. Um, if you want to communicate big data, what you're really doing is you're talking about communicating what the content of tables of numbers are. So for an historian, we're not as interested in tables of numbers are as we, as we are in what those tables of numbers mean and what behavior that represents, what is included in those calculations, what is excluded from those calculations, what's favored, what's suppressed, etc. So 
the role of data visualization becomes central in all of this. Data visualization in this newer digital humanities way of approaching digital history is one way in which you turn tables of data into a set of interpretations and conclusions in a person. And so for a scholar who's seeking to use visualizations, as I do in my research, very quickly you come into questions of, well, what visual presentation is going to represent my findings best? And then you're quickly asking questions of, well, am I presupposing or am I pre-biasing my audience to make a certain conclusion based on how I color one thing in a bold color or color another thing in a more uh, uh, subtle color, for example? Uh, and then immediately accessibility issues come in. For example, people who have deficiencies in color perception. How do you present a set of such results to those sorts of scholars or those sorts of, of, of everyday people who are interested in the subject? So... The question of presentation is key. The question of how these arguments are, are internalized and understood in the audience is a big, is a big challenge as well. So I would add, I think it's important to clarify for our listeners the, 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 the point that Mickey made a moment ago. Historians are used to dealing with scarcity, not abundance. Um, and in my field in labor and social history, that's doubly, trebly the case in the sense that it's very, it's very easy to do relatively the history of what we would in the past called great white men, white, you know, business leaders, politicians, military leaders, because they left an abundant written record. And Kissinger is an example of that. And ordinary people, you know, working people of all sorts don't do that. So we've, as historians, had to pioneer other kinds of methods to figure out how to tell those stories. Well, Mickey's got the opposite problem, as she just described. There's this enormous abundance of material in the telcons and, and, and memcoms that, that, that uh, she's had to look at from Kissinger. And so the overabundance poses a different kind of problem. What historians would typically do in the past would be dig in, do a close reading, and try to keep all of that information um, uh, you know, at hand, but also inevitably cherry-picked to pick the things that confirmed their arguments. And that's not a criticism, that's just the nature of how we do research and writing. But this approach sort of deals with what Franco Moretti called distant reading, and, and really what it does is the opposite. If you think of a telescope and a microscope, this is a telescope looking at a huge corpus of material and using digitally analytical methods to extract interesting insights into behavior, into beliefs, into the structure of someone's um, understanding, in this case Kissinger, of his role historically. And that would be a very, very difficult thing to do. It would take years, if not decades, a single person going through it. Mickey had the good sense to sort of ask the question, how can we use a, a distant reading to look at this corpus of material and extract new meaning out of it? And that's both the challenge that she set out to take and uh, to, to undertake, and I think she's done a remarkable job in meeting it. We're all waiting with bated breath for the dissertation. 
One, one metaphor I've used to explain this a number of ways, number of times rather, is um, when you contribute a new telescope, for example, to an astronomer's practice. I mean, if you hand a telescope to an astronomer and say, here, try this new tool, the first thing that astronomer is going to do is look at their favorite object, and if they see something that is so radically different on the surface of this planet than anything they've seen before, and they can't contextualize the results of what they're looking at, uh, that telescope may very well go back on the shelf. It has to be able to contribute to the current historiographical understanding. It has to have a, a place within the traditional scholarship that can point to innovation, as all good scholarship tends to do. Um, not so radically reposition or represent this material that it is inaccessible to the scholars uh, who perform work uh, on Kissinger and in this historiography. So that's been part of the balance. I think that's absolutely the case. That's why digital humanities is a really interesting new approach to these kinds of questions. And, and it plays out differently in English and in history and in linguistics and philosophy. In some ways, it's badly misnamed. It isn't really digital humanities because it goes well beyond the traditional humanities disciplines to include social sciences and arts and, and theater and, and performance. There's a, a range of, of uh, disciplines or, or interdisciplines that that we really need to consider um, as we think of uh, how to use digital humanities. But I think every field is faced in the, in the digital era with an overabundance of information. So where, whereas historians, for example, could count on an archivist at a library or an archive to curate, the perfect word that Mickey used, curate a collection of letters or materials and do finding aids and such, um, can't do that with digital materials. So if you've got a, if you've got a, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of email messages, how do you f literally physically go through them? And what we need are some other methods, some new methods that help us think about how to drill down. And this is what I think quantifying Kissinger is really about. And there are wonderful distinctions in Mickey's work that I really, I think you should talk a little bit more about. I was always struck with the distinctions you drew between the telecoms and the memcoms, one being much more sort of official, which would be the memcoms because they're written and typed out and formally structured. And the telecoms are kind of transcriptions of telephone conversations, which I, I would bet Kissinger never expected anybody was going to read. The memcoms, absolutely, those were sort of public, private documents, if you will. But the way you analyze using topic modeling issues like bombing in Cambodia and the difference between how those come to be represented in the memcoms and the telcoms, I think is really an interesting insight that you know, it would be good for you to share. Sure, yeah. Uh, that was something that struck me uh, with the material as well. Uh, the memcons, as Steve mentioned, are uh, meeting memoranda. They're formal documents that are and were formally uh, stenographed, recorded, distributed, uh, classified, redacted, and then declassified and released. So these are documents that have followed a, a paper trail that is clear and well-established and official. And so the content of those documents, while it's very rich, lots of country names, lots of people names, lots of detail about what was said and who said what, lots of long-form text. Uh, and also, the memcons tend to be quite long in comparison to the telcons. The telcons are these telephone transcripts, and they tend to be much shorter and conversational. So whereas in a memcon, you might see language like... Um, 
Dr. Kissinger, colon, and then an extract of word for word what he said, uh, and then a break, and then the next person to respond, and then a full recording to whatever extent uh, it is captured uh, of what was said by that person and so on. The telcons are tend to be paraphrasing. Um, VP said such and such to such and such. Um, indirect language. People's names are not r repeated the way they are in formal long-form documents. Country names, other places, etc. So you find that the conversational nature of the telcons is so stark in comparison to the memcons. And as Steve mentioned, uh, indeed, Kissinger had a expectation of privacy to some significant extent regarding those telephone conversations. When he left office, uh, or when he left uh, the administration under Ford, he took those telecons with him as his personal papers. Uh, he eventually provided them to the Library of Congress um, under subpoena threat. Um, so it could be argued that he indeed had a much higher degree of privacy in the telecons than the memcons. The reason that becomes important um, is when you ask, as Steve also mentioned, this this question of a word like bombing. And there are a number of these words that, that um, to identify them as my chosen words is, the, well, these are words I clearly chose because they are of historical import. The question of bombing and Kissinger are, uh, are linked to the bombing of Cambodia, et cetera, North Vietnam, um, and other places. Um, but other words uh, also have interesting meaning in, this, in these archives, like, for example, the word laughter, which is often included in the transcript to indicate when the room behavior is cheerful or jovial in response to a comment. So the word bombing, for example, a logical question is, well, what are they talking about bombing? So a logical computational approach to that is, what are the words that are found close around the word bombing in the text? And so then when you go through and you count every single occurrence of the word bombing and every single surrounding word within, say, a 20-word range or a 50-word range, um, you see that the patterns of word distribution are significantly different between the telecons and the memcons. So when they're in a meeting, a formal meeting, and they're using the word bombing, the language is very indistinct. There are lots of countries in those conversations, lots of people's names, lots of other places. In the telcons, however, um, there are these interesting co-occurrences co between the word bombing and certain places like, for example, the word Cambodia. When you look for every co-location, as it's called, between the word bombing and the word Cambodia, in the memcons, they're fairly evenly distributed, not only in terms of across the timeline, but how closely to the word bombing that the word Cambodia happens. So if they were talking about bombing Cambodia a lot, you'd see a zero distance, in other words, direct adjacency between the words bombing and Cambodia fairly frequently. But that's not what you see in the memcons. These documents have been uh, prepared, they have been redacted, they have been declassified and cleaned up, and you don't see that kind of relationship. In the telcons, however, you do see some interesting clustering of the two words around historically meaningful times, like, for example, Kent State, uh, the Watergate trials, the escalation of violence uh, against Cambodia, and then later in the timeline for a brief moment, the fall of Phnom Penh. So the, 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 the provenance of the material, how personal, how candid the material was, how uh, scrubbed that material is prior to becoming available to me, all has a direct result in the kinds of potential interpretations I can make of the material of some of these more controversial or questionable uh, historical questions. Well, for me, I would say 
Mickey's work should inspire other graduate students to push a little bit the edge of the envelope, which is to say, if you come in and you're convinced you know exactly what you're going to do um, and you, who you're going to study with, there's a lot of serendipity involved in work like this. It was true in my own work. It's certainly true in Mickey's. You may have an idea of where you want to go, but my word of advice is as you're pursuing your formal um, academic training in whatever discipline you do, open yourself up to other possibilities here at the Graduate Center. So we have this digital praxis course that Matt Gold and I have taught several times. Mickey was a, a, a you know a, a grad assistant in that course, very helpful. This was for um, first-year math students, but also first-year doctoral students who are interested in learning about digital techniques. If you have the flexibility or you have the interest in, in, and your program will allow it, I really recommend in your first year taking that digital praxis course because it will give you a kind of orientation to digital tools that you may find very intriguing and interesting for the work that you ultimately do. Second area, of course, that I'm biased toward is a program is the Interactive Technology and Pedagogy Doctoral Certificate Program that I founded here at the Grad Center 15 years ago which really works across disciplines with students in you know from every kind of program who are interested in exploring the use of digital tools and their direct impact on teaching and learning and I think those two programs I'm involved in both so it's a little self-serving of me to say this but I do think that they provide an interesting opportunity for new doctoral students and now students to, to, to get involved in things digital. Uh, another point I'd mention um, uh, overall is, you know, I already said sort of the, the digital GC, but also the history department at the GC is really exceptional. Uh, it's a small department. It's small enough that every student really is able to craft their dissertation and their, their research properly. I got tremendous support from the Graduate Center's history department, uh, and uh, it's been a great pleasure to work with them. Uh, but the last piece of advice I'd give to scholars who are considering this kind of work, digital or otherwise, really, uh, is is just basic, which is um, a lot of times graduate students can be really paralyzed by the question of what do I want to write my dissertation about? No matter what it is that they are interested in, this big looming question of what they're going to devote their scholarship to. Um, and what I would recommend that you do is this. Um, don't beat yourself up about not knowing what that thing is. Just limit yourself to attending those classes and going to those programs and projects and presentations and participating in those groups that truly interest you. If you go and perform or, or, or if you go and take a class and it really doesn't interest you that much but you think it plays a building block somewhere in your work, it may not be that solid of a building block. You have to have a core commitment and interest to what it is you're proposing doing. I found that by saying to myself, this class doesn't interest me, and dropping that class, I got more clarity about what I did want to do than by taking part in classes that didn't seem like things that interested me, but they might hypothetically contribute to some sort of future research. So the best guide for how to go about charting your course of what coursework you take and how you go about your work, I think should be your own internal barometer of whether or not you feel a core intellectual stimulation uh, and enjoyment for the process. Um, 
to sum it up, just have a good time all the time. Because <laughs> nothing else is going to get you through. Yeah. As I say to doctoral students who, who, who enter the Graduate Center, you really have to love your project because you're going to be living with it for a very long time. This has been Academically Speaking, presented by the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Subscribe on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and visit us on the web at gc.cuny.edu slash podcast. <laughs>